Welcome, welcome to the Hard Skills Podcast and Show with me, Dr. Mira Bronku. I work with leaders in healthcare research, STEM, and other technical fields who recognize that developing yourself and your teams and creating healthy, inclusive workplace cultures and environments will help you retain the best people doing the highest level work. In other words, developing the hard skills needed to make a greater impact. If you value evidence-based solutions and are committed to consistent practice, then this is the podcast and show for you. This season, we're exploring the first stage in my strategic leadership pathway model, Facing Uncertainty. And today, we're talking with Dr. Raymond Abdulrahman about leading with uncertainty in engaging in DEI efforts and discussions, which are definitely hard skills, according to some. Now, I don't want you listening or watching with this passively. I want you to reflect deeply. Take notes. I take notes all the time. And identify at least one small step to further develop your hard skills muscle. So let me introduce our guest today. Dr. Raymond Abdulrahman is a uh, clinical and consulting psychologist who applies his skills of creating sustainable change to leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion. He has a broad and international portfolio of clients, including Google and YouTube, MasterCard Foundation, and Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, among others. He's a true thought leader in this field, and that includes international teaching. He's an assistant professor with the Department of Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba and has held three visiting professor positions at Zanzibar University, the State University of Zanzibar, and Muhimbili. University of Health and Allied Sciences. His thought leadership also includes writing, speaking, and innovating. He's the author of an upcoming book, Developing Anti-Racist Cultural Competence, due in early 2024. He's a TEDx speaker on resolving unconscious bias. And he's the founder of testbias.com and livingwithracism.com. I took the assessment and I checked out the sites, both worth your time if you want to increase your understanding and awareness of racism and bias. He was also awarded the Excellence in Diversity and Inclusion uh, Consulting Award by the Society of Consulting Psychology. And finally, he too hosts a podcast on the difficult conversations of racism called Different People, which is absolutely fantastic. So, Raymond and I also know each other through the Society of Consulting Psychologists. I've had the opportunity to hear him speak on this topic numerous times, and the agility and clarity he offers in the space is really worth your time. So welcome, Raymond. I'm so glad to have you with us on the show. Oh, and um, you're on mute right now, so you're going to need to unmute to share. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm very honored to be a part of this podcast. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I wanted to start by asking one thing. Did I say your name right? Or did I get it wrong? Uh, it was close. Uh, the last name is pronounced Abdurrahman. Abdurrahman. So, yeah, that's pretty good. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. So this is one of the things I think about often when we sometimes like get anxious about getting things right. And one of the first things is just like names, right? Like names are fairly simple, but they're really important to people. And when you start having discussions about diversity, we worry about saying the wrong things or offending people and doing it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And even yeah. like with names, why is that? Well, I mean, I think this is a hard skill and it has a lot of challenges with it for, for a couple of reasons. And I think certainly there's a great deal of anxiety and I think, you know, um, we live in a culture, well, the history of racism and the experience of racism is certainly a deeply invasive and pervasively problematic one. So obviously it's going to create a natural anxiety, but the fear of being called out as somebody who has racist tendencies or somebody who has bias certainly can create a lot of fear. On the flip side of that, it's also important to recognize that many people of color or people from marginalized communities also have a great sense of fear because when they've expressed those challenges with racism uh, or discrimination, they're often minimized and dismissed, and people tend to see them as fanatical. But it's also a, it's also a hard thing because people don't know what they're talking about. And so, you know, 
talking about issues of racism can be very elusive. And, and I think about, you know, one of my favorite books was Interview with a Vampire. And I think of a scene right at the beginning where <clears throat> the vampire Louis, um, you know, takes up the interviewer to this apartment to offer him this interview. And, um, and then he turns on the light and then boom, he's right next to the interviewer and he startles the interviewer and the interviewer says, uh, how did you do that? And the response from the vampire is the same as you, a series of steps, one subsequent to the other, just faster than you could notice. And the thing about racism that I tend to say is that it's generally North America's best kept secret. And that's a hard thing to believe, given that our news is filled with really tragic incidences. But what we see there is really the tip of the iceberg. And there's this lack of knowledge that could be otherwise quite simple. You know, one series of steps, one following the other, just like the vampire Louis said. Um, it could be quite simple, but because of that lack of knowledge, it's not just fear. It's not just anxiety. It's a lack of understanding. And that's why I do what I do is to increase that understanding. So are you saying that maybe sometimes our fear starts with just a lack of understanding? And if we sort of start engaging and increasing our awareness, that maybe the fear could sort of eventually come along with with that? Um, I'm not sure. I think that they can be they can be uh, an overlap between those two, but I'm not sure that they I think they're two mutually exclusive things that sometimes overlap. I think fear is certainly there because of the nature of the topic and a whole series of other issues that creates fear. I think the moment you feel like you're going to be attacked, whether you admit to bias or you are the victim of racism on a regular basis, that's going to create fear. Um but I think that if you have privilege and you're blind to it and you don't have the experience of being marginalized, it really creates a lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that blindness also applies to people of color. And I mean, the truth is that, you know, if you live a life of being discriminated on a regular basis, you start to just see it as normal and you tend not to pay attention to it. And it leads to a concept of ethnic and cultural identity development where we have to start to look at that aspect of who we are, whether whether we are leaders or not, particularly if we're leaders. You know, how does systemic racism and the prevalence of white supremacy really influence our own ethnic and cultural identity? Because that's an element of knowledge that we also need to get to as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I'm thinking about this and thinking about like, how do we get folks to feel more comfortable engaging in these conversations. And maybe you you can't get comfortable until you just start it, right? Um, right? So so one of the the greatest feelings of uncertainty, though, that -hmm. a lot of leaders personally experience is how to have these conversations and take critical actions, right, Mm -hmm. related to diversity, equity, inclusion, access, justice, belong, these these kinds of things. but they're really hard skills uh, for many, right? So mm-hmm. wh- why are they so difficult? What What is sort of the, the barrier there to overcome? Well, uh, I mean, there's we talked about some of those barriers already, right? I mean, there is an unawareness of the issues. Uh, I don't think people really get it. I think there's the fear. Um, but But I also think that, sometimes one has to really understand like motivation, Mm. you know, and the motivation of wanting to change. I think the dilemma here is that under the umbrella of awareness is a lot of people think that this really isn't as big of an issue as it actually is. You know, I think that we don't see burning crosses in the middle of our offices. We don't have separate sections on buses and, you know, we have a single water fountain and water cooler where people gather to, you know, to connect or something at, at an office. And so we think that there's no barriers. But if you don't have that lived experience of what that barrier actually is, if we don't understand what modern day racism actually is, how are we going to work on it? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I, I'm I'm hearing three things. Num- number one is lack of awareness. Um, mm-hmm. Number two is fear. And number three, which I find e- extremely intriguing, is this motivation. Like if I don't see the issue, which is connected to lack of awareness, right? Yeah. If I don't see the issue, 
Mm-hmm. Um, if it doesn't have a direct impact on me or my family or like anything around me, um, where am I going to gather that motivation to lean in and find like, this is still important to do. This is still important for me and for others. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that if we, if we're blind to the problem and we, and we don't have that sense of empathy of how it impacts others, but also impacts us as a part of a larger community, um, then why would we change? Yeah. You know, so what, what, is so the, what is the need for that? Right. So um, how would we start to, if, if I'm a leader who yeah. it, it's not impacting me, I don't get it. I don't understand what the big deal is. Right. It's, it's, um, it, um, everything seems fine to me, but why is everybody complaining about this? Right. right. Like, where yeah. do I even begin as a leader to start working through, like, just accessing the motivation? Right. Right. Yeah. So let's take it, let's take it a step back. Generally speaking, you know, and we talked about, you know, this concept of exposure, psychologists were aware of this idea that the more we gradually face our fears, the more comfortable we get in discussing or having those conversations. And I think, you know, addressing racism and systemic racism really is a public health issue. And if we think about other public health issues, like, you know, um, you know, issues of safe sex, uh, breastfeeding, you know, um, COVID, all of those issues were really difficult to have at the beginning. And now it's just, you know, because it's impacted so many people, we just kind of go along with it. And so motivation exists not just because of a lack of awareness, but because it impacts people. And I'm going to say something kind of controversial, um, but I think it's true. Um, when white people are impacted, we move very, very fast to make changes. And so when we looked at when we look at marginalized groups that are impacted by discrimination, if white people are in those marginalized groups, we move fast. Um, and it's not to say that we've achieved equity on issues of women's issues or the LGBT or the queer community. We have still a long way to go. But because white people are included in those marginalized groups, the movement has come far faster than the issues tied to people of color. Mm. Right. Um, and so and so that's also an important thing to be considerate when we think about motivation. And what that pulls for is the sense of empathy and relatability. And it points to what we're seeing now in some data that we're finding from, you know, our bias outside the box or testbias.com tool is that we, when we have a sense of familiarity or when we relate to people, we're less likely to see the bias. But the more we see them as outsiders, the more likely we are to have biases towards them. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, okay, we're getting into it. We're going to dig in a little bit more, but we're going to pause right now. We're nearing an ad break. So you're listening to The Hard Skills with me, Dr. Mira Branku, and our guest, Dr. Rehman Abdul-Rahman. The Hard Skills airs live with us on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to join us, Rehman and I, right now live and ask some questions, you are welcome to. We're open to receiving questions and answering them in real time. You can find us on LinkedIn right now. We're having a little bit of an issue with the LinkedIn streaming, but you could also find us on YouTube at talkradio.nyc. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. 
I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape driving companies from the startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and intangify your business today. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Welcome, welcome back. Um, we uh, still have some trouble with streaming to uh, LinkedIn, but I did post on LinkedIn other places that you can find us, YouTube, Twitch, um, Twitter. Um, you started, Raymond, talking about um, what you're learning from testbias.com. I'm going to, for those of you who are watching us uh, live right now, I'm going to share um, my screen for a second here so that I can show folks where to find it. This is um, his main page, leadwithdiversity.com. And if you click on test bias from there, you'll see more information about how to get to this bias outside the box. Would you like to share a little bit more about this and what you're learning from this? When you um, we started sort of talking about the public health issue, we talked about like familiarity and empathy. What are you learning from from this data, from this information? Yeah, so in my work with, I mean, I developed this tool because in my work in coaching and uh, leaders and working with organizations who struggle with trying to meet some DEI goals, what they don't recognize is often people's individuals individual biases impact public policy and organizational culture. And people are very threatened to have that conversation often in a group. And I wanted people to be able to have an individual personal journey and conversation with themselves. And so I created this tool so people could have this private journey to be able to safely feel they could identify their biases and ask themselves questions about what lack of information they had or what false information they had. And we thought it'd be a good idea to start collecting data. And the data that we've got to date is like mind blowing. What it's teaching us about bias has been so significant. Our sample size is massive. I think it must be close to 6,000 by now. Uh, You know, every day I'm getting notifications that people are filling this out numerous times in a day. So it's a bit of a um, research nerds like dream, right? It's like all this data. Um, I was trying to get a colleague in and they're like, stop dangling the shiny coin in front of my face. (laughs) I don't need more work, but I want to. Um, so what we're learning actually are some really very interesting things. Number one, um, that the biases that we carry as a North American society overall, and that's largely the population that has filled this, uh, measure out. We tend to have the same biases regardless of who we are. And that suggests that even, uh, people of color, even immigrants, even people who are left-leaning or right-leaning politically, regardless of age or education, our biases tend to follow the same trend. Wow. And that really speaks to this concept of systemic racism of how all of us have adopted these biases, which are incorrect about people, and, and that perpetuate stereotypes. So that's very interesting that we're noticing. We're also noticing that When people have some relatability to the experience of marginalization, they are, although they will carry those biases, the presence of those biases is less present, like significantly less present. So, for example, we find uh, individuals who identify as transgender um, will, in some cases, actually have less biases uh, against marginalized people. Uh, be them white or um, BIPOC people, um, those transgender people who have that element of that experience of being marginalized against, it creates empathy. We're also recognizing that some individuals, when they have greater, um, the the moment people identify themselves as being marginalized and they become complicit, 
we notice that they can sometimes carry more bias. So for example, slow down for a second. So I know some people don't know what that means to become complicit. Yes. What, What do we mean by that? So complicit is where we just don't pay attention. You know, we are, we are not paying attention to who we are. We just letting things go. We are, I think about, you know, the spectrum of complicity where we just accept things as they are and carry on, including our own mind and our own thoughts. The other opposite end of the spectrum is this hypervigilance, which I don't think is healthy either, where we're always nervous about, you know, I think that's where we get this, you know, people are eager to cancel things right away. I do think some things need to be canceled, but, you know, we go to that quick response on the right, on the far right. And then where I think where we need to be is a sense of mindfulness, where we are trying to pay attention to and be mindful to our thoughts. And so complicity, complicity is on one end, hypervigilance is on the other, where we want to move people and where this tool was meant to be developed was to create a sense of mindfulness about our own biases. So when people are complicit and ignoring their own thoughts and not recognizing they might carry bias, or they automatically might assume that they are from a marginalized group, therefore they don't carry bias, actually they can be more likely to carry bias. And there were two particular groups where we noticed this. So for example, uh, in some cases, um, immigrants were more likely to carry xenophobic views uh, than people who are not immigrants, you know, and so we assume that, you know, we've been marginalized against and that's my, that, and actually that leads us to have more bias. But another very interesting thing is that, you know, the one group of marginalized people that we've often identified as being the primary ally to people of color, and that's white women, uh, because of their experience of sexism and marginalization due to gender, actually in some cases carry the same amount, and in some cases, more bias than white men. And to me, that's that's a very fascinating and again, it speaks to that sense of complicity when we automatically assume that we don't have issues because we're a part of a marginalized group um, when in fact, we've got work to do ourselves. Yeah, yeah, oof. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, one of the things that I'm picking up on and, and let me know if, if I got this right is when you're describing the two ends of the spectrum, right? Yes. You're describing the sort of lack of, of awareness or ignoring um, versus the other end, uh, hypervigilance. Yes. Um, it sounds like under and overreacting. Like yes. you're either underreacting to what's there or overreacting. And either way, it doesn't help when we go yes. to those extremes. Absolutely. But it, but it also speaks to our sense of awareness about the problem, right? How much we are, like, I think complicity speaks to our understanding and awareness, not just our reaction to, but our Mm -hmm. own awareness of ourselves and the world around us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This, it, it honestly reminds me of um, a really great class that I took in Early 2000s, I was, I was getting my master's um, in school counseling and it was, um, it was on um, diversity. Uh, it was, you know, the, the master's program was um, heavily emphasized multicultural counseling, which was kind of the, the word back then. Multicultural was the, the word that we used back then for that. And, um, and I remember saying uh, awkwardly, um, to, to my dismay now looking back, <laughs> um, things like, well, I understand what it's like to be marginalized and, as an immigrant or as a woman. So I didn't actually say this out loud. This doesn't apply to me, but like, I was pretty much acting like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, um, a huge cognitive bias on my part. Right. And so the professor had to like work me through, um, this assumption, right? Yes. And that was like 20, 25 years ago, whatever. Um, but um, I'm still on a journey of learning 20, 25 years later. And so um, this is not like a one and done. This is like a relearning, unlearning, relearning, growth, understanding yourself, self-awareness kind of journey. And it's not like you don't make progress every single year, right? But it just gets easier and you you get better. And then ch- I feel like things have changed over time too, right? Like the language, the way we think about it, the complexity, the nuance, which 
Um, in some ways, I wonder if um, that alone um, makes it hard to stay engaged. Like, is it, um, I, started, I, I sometimes wonder, like, is the overwhelm of where to start also part of the problem? I don't think so. I like, so first and foremost, thank you for the honesty and for sharing that. And I think that's a, that's a, I think you're a good role model in demonstrating how to identify, you know, the biases that we hold doesn't always necessarily make us bad people. It makes us uninformed and there's nothing wrong with being uninformed and moving towards becoming more informed. But I don't think there's this concept of being overwhelmed. I mean, people live with information like that all the time. People of color are overwhelmed with racism on a regular basis. And we survive, we thrive, we live our lives, you know, and with with due respect, I mean, that sense of overwhelmness often speaks to the fragility that many people of color will say, you know, if you've not lived this life and you hear about it, it's feelings overwhelming. Well, we live that life on a regular basis. But I do think it's important that we look for other examples where we've been able to do this well. And when we recognize, you know, the, the sociopolitical and even environmental circumstances that we live in impact our everyday choices and how if we ignore them, we're in deep doo-doo. Um, you know, if you think about our health, if we're complicit about our health, what would happen? I mean, I'd be eating cake all the time and I'd be in serious <laughs> trouble, but we're not overwhelmed when we're hit over the head with information about our health. No, we, we take note, we sit up, we pay attention. We're like, good, I've got to be mindful about my health. You know, the environment, you know, if we were complicit about that, you know, we'd be again, indeed, doo-doo, but we are thoughtful, we're hit over the head and we should be hit over the head because we are in an urgent crisis when it comes to climate change. This is not that different. But again, it speaks to this. What you're saying is what a lot of people say. I'm feeling overwhelmed. It's a bit too much. This is exactly what I mean is that when we move towards issues that impact non-racialized people, we move faster and more comfortably. The moment we address it for marginalized people of color, we slow it down. Ooh, very good. Okay. I have a million more questions for you. However, we are up on another ad break. So as a reminder, you're listening to The Hard Skills with me, Dr. Mira Branku, and our guest, Dr. Rehman Abdul-Rehman. The Hard Skills airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can join us live right now and ask some questions if you'd like us to answer them right back. And we will be back in just a moment with our guest. Passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be frank about health to advocate for all of us. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
Welcome, welcome back. I am here on the hard skills with Dr. Rahman Abdul Rahman. And we are talking about leading with uncertainty when it comes to DEI efforts. Now, where we left off is we've identified a number of challenges. Three of them that I caught were lack of awareness, fear, and motivation, and this sort of swing, pendulum swing back and forth from that lack of awareness or ignoring complicity all the way through hypervigilance or overreacting. And how do you, how do you get to the middle? And three things that I heard about how to start getting more activated and engaged in these kinds of efforts and um, discussions are mindfulness, addressing our fragility, and becoming more aware. Um, one potential way to become more aware that um, Raymond shared with us is his testbias.com um, assessment. When you go on that site and you take the assessment, it's a way for you to just have a private journey of awareness so that it starts with you on your own in kind of a safe space when you're sort of starting to increase awareness. But there's probably other ways to do that as well. So I'm curious, um, Raymond, what um, best practices or frameworks do you have for the awareness building in addition to that and or mindfulness or facing this fragility that that um, you know, many white people experience when they don't experience the marginalization. Um, how, how do we sort of enter into those areas? Well, I mean, so let's, yeah, I mean, probably related to that is to assume we're, we can't assume that we're a do-gooder. I think a lot of people assume that they step into the space thinking that, you know, they're do-gooders. And I think that complacency creates a risk for bias. So I think being aware of that is important is step number one. Um, in terms of knowledge, I think it's, I mean, in the same way, you know, I mentioned some public health issues that how we've addressed them very quickly when it came to public health information. I really think the world leaders individually, but leaders as organizations, and I think about the media as an organizational leader in our society, really need to work on improving education and information. And that means understanding what white supremacy actually is. And white supremacy is really about a cultural supremacy more than anything else. And you'll see this particularly when, you know, like, for example, in my work with uh, a lot of immigrants, uh, you know, when you meet Eastern European immigrants um, who are phenotypically Caucasian, but you sit with them at the dinner table and they'll talk about white people, white people this and white people that. And they're not identifying themselves as white because for them, they're referring to culturally white people, right? And uh, and them coming to look for me as a clinician because they feel like culturally we're more aligned. And it's not about ethnicity, you know, it's it's about the cultural familiarity. So I think it's important that people understand what that means. But I also think it's important that people start to begin to understand that white supremacy doesn't just negatively impact people of color, but it also negatively impacts white people. You know, in a, in a modern, diverse world where we have to engage with all sorts of people, where our success is tied to the successful engagement and the ability to have empathy and trust with a broad range of people, white supremacy artificially inflates a sense of self-worth in white people, and, and, and it creates a sense of ignorance. And the research actually confirms that. And so... I think people have to understand what that means and start to not take personal offense to that. You know, this concept of racism, the concept of bias, this isn't always a personal thing. The people who are often the most dangerous aren't the people burning the crosses. You know, the people who are the most dangerous are the people who don't think that they're racist and are, you know, killing people softly with racism that they're not mindful of. And that's really where that work needs to be done. So, you know, when we, we have to understand that we can be good people and unintentionally engage in racist behavior that is harming other people. It's really, and that when we admit to that, we're not admitting that we are racist, but rather that we hold views that are incorrect, that in, allow us to engage even unwittingly in racist behavior. And we can apply that metaphor to all sorts of behaviors, right? Like I could be unwittingly, you know, as an employer, contributing to obesity in the workplace by the because I'm unaware of what's in my vending machine. 
right? Now, should I get easily offended by that? It's like, how dare you question my vending machine? My leadership skills are in question because there's only potato chips and Snickers bars. No, I would be like, whoa, okay, let me be informed. You're right. I will take that feedback. Let's change the content of that vending machine so that we have healthy eating habits in our workplace. Simple, small thing, but we're not easily offended by that. But again, I think it, I think that's a critical piece. It's also, I think you mentioned it well, you know, about this journey. It's also important to recognize that in the process of being mindful versus hypervigilant, this process of becoming culturally competent, which I think is really the solution to a lot of this racism, that's a journey. This is not a niche topic that just applies to people of color. It impacts society as a whole. And we know that because the research actually confirms that when we have more inclusive spaces, not only are people more productive and happy at work, but we know actually the economic output increases, right? So even in, not just in companies, but in, in entire countries where there is, and I don't think there's a country that's doing it perfectly, but the ones that are doing it better, there's actually increased gross domestic product. And for companies, we know, you know, that increased inclusivity increases productivity 10 times of the productivity that would be if we didn't have that inclusion. So we have to start to recognize this as not a niche topic, but an issue that impacts all of society and that it's a journey that we all need to be on and that it be, needs to become a part of our discussion on a regular basis. And I think when we do that, we move past cancel culture and we start to move it into a culture where we're actually able to have a discussion. In the same way we've been able to discuss all sorts of issues tied to health and well-being, you know, you know, be it, you know, safe sex or COVID. Now, you know, people aren't offended. When, it, when we first started the issue with COVID, people were like, how dare you expect me to wear a mask in public? You know, a few months in and the same naysayers were the ones who were wearing masks in public because they recognized the seriousness of the problem. So leaders play an important role in leading that discussion and recognizing this is an issue that needs to be engaged with on a regular basis, both within their organizations and in society. And so what I say to organizations and leaders is that you have to think about the goal, not just internally within your organization, but also outfacing externally. You have those two goals. And both of those are critically important to not just the success of your business and your organization, but also your ability to do well in society. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I'm hearing um, how closely this is tied to all kinds of positive, healthy outcomes for individuals, companies, and societies. You yes. know, as I as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, like, if if we can get out of this unhealthy obsession with white supremacy, <laughs> right? Um, which is which is um, dangerous to our health um, yeah. and outcomes. Um, the the outcome on the other side is so much more. Um, yes. It's and, and it's not just um, sort of like health and well being, but um, I can only imagine the kind of um, talent that you can unlock mm-hmm. as a leader of a company, of an organization, or even of a team that where you respect and appreciate and understand and can pull out the very best out of people because you don't have one view of what's best or right or better or something like that. Absolutely. And most leaders I work with, they like to have their ear to the ground. They like to know what's happening in their business and their organization. But I'm going to go back to that statement that racism is the best kept secret. People of color are not telling you. They're talking behind your back. Absolutely. At our dinner tables. And that's the whole point of my podcast is to make those conversations public so people Mm. know. But at our dinner tables, when we're alone with people who are similar to us, we talk. We have conversations about, did you notice that? I mean, women do this around men, right? When you notice somebody who's being sexist and you're around other women, you'd be like, guess what? Did you notice that? And so I think it's time that we move past that. And I think leaders need to work on being aware and having their ear to the ground of the issues that are impacting the success of their business. And I think racism and marginalization are those critical issues. And so can you imagine a leader who who may not be a person of color, 
but has their ear to ground to understand. I can tell you as a person of color myself, that goes a long way. You get a lot of street cred. Hmm. People respect you. They're more likely to follow what you're saying. They're more likely to engage with you. Trust is there because they know that you get it. When you get it, you've engaged in trust. But it's critical. We go back to, to, it has to, it has to go back to our understanding. What, what does it mean when we say we have a culture of white supremacy? So I want to go back to that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've been all over the place here. No, let's, let's do that. Cause I, 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 um, I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, white supremacy, when people hear that, I think we have these really archaic notions of what that means. We think of the KKK, we think of burning crosses, we think of separate seating spaces. And most of us would never identify with that level of racism. So we think that's not us, doesn't apply to me, I'm good. White supremacy, modern white, modern, modern day white supremacy is really a psychological issue. It's a standard that we've internalized that's based on a white standard what we consider to be professional, what we consider to be ideal beauty standards, what we consider to be good education, what we what we consider to be anything to be higher up is usually tied to white culture. And we ignore and invalidate and create no space for any other way of looking at the world or business or engagement at all. Now, that's really what that is. And that's something that I think that people need to start to pay attention to. And we can look at that in terms of, you know, who do we see as leaders uh, in organizations, predominantly all white. I mean, even in the United States, we've had one black president, now one black and South Asian vice president. Uh, In Canada, zero, you know, uh, when it comes to prime ministers. So when it comes to uh, even cultural representation of holidays, what holidays are we paying attention to? What days do people get off? That's a cultural supremacy, a white supremacy right there. We need to start to see what's really happening and understand the psychological impact of of these of the way we've lived and the way we've looked at the world that we've inherited from racist ancestors and start to undo some of that rather than just accepting that as the norm and a standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and part of undoing is just knowing what all of that is, right? Like it's, if you don't realize that this is part of white supremacy and, and you think that this is like, this is just a normal thing that everybody's on board with, right? Yes. That, um, that will interfere with our ability to engage in the questioning and the challenging, right? Well, Freud's, Freud said insight is the cure, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Because Freud again. Means, <laughs> we we got it right. Freud. Yeah. Okay. We are nearing an ad break. You're listening to the hard skills with me, Dr. Mir Branku, and our guest, Dr. Rahman Abdul, Abdul Rahman. And you can um, ask any questions that you like um, right now online and we'll answer them. Otherwise, we will be back with our guest in just a moment. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape thriving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify, your business today. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're 
listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Welcome, welcome back. So as we were talking about like trying to understand what is modern day white supremacy, what does it look like? And you're describing this. I started imagining um, the matrix, you know, on the matrix, like you get the red pill and you get the blue pill and the people who um, decided, I don't remember on the blue pill, was the blue pill (laughs) decided (laughs) that. He, you know, they're, they're not interested in real life. They want, they want the comfort of the system to protect them and to live a comfortable life of ignoring what's actually happening around them that actually has caused humanity to be used against themselves. Whereas if you took the red pill or whichever one, um, it's you deciding like, this is not acceptable to be used this way by a system and I'm not going to buy into it and I'm going to fight. And once you take it though, you really can't undo what you see. Like then you have to like actually feel like you need to take responsibility for what you see. And it's kind of like how you're describing this. Yeah. Please call me Morpheus from now on. Um, it it is ultimately that and and what happens that that's that ethnic and cultural identity development that applies to all people racialized or not um is that once we have that awareness it allows us to start to feel comfortable in our own skin um and then eventually to be able to advocate for who we are and what we need yeah um and i'd like to pull that out even more like um there is something so powerful and, and an empowering when you actually can understand yourself well, and you can understand what's played into who you are, how you've come to be, why you think the way that you think, um, and make like active decisions about it instead of um, feeling like you have to fit into some norm. Um, or what people tell you. And so that includes engaging in these kinds of conversations is like, it, it's not, um, it, it can actually be a really good thing for people to engage in just for themselves. Absolutely. It, it's why I think part of the solution here is for leaders to have that coaching to address this, right? Like it's kind of like your ear to the ground. Um, if you start to understand what's happening in the real world, you get to see it for what happens. And that, that gives you the agility you need to succeed in a very diverse world. We live in a diverse world, but in order to be able to succeed in that, you need the agility of, of the understanding of the mindset and the worldview of different groups of people. Absolutely. Now tell us more about your upcoming book. You have Yeah, book? I'm very excited. Yeah. My, my glorified pamphlet is how I like it. <laughs> For an uh, easy read, folks. It's... Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, Accessible. Accessible. I I think that the skills to becoming anti-racist and culturally competent and the book is called Developing Anti-Racist Cultural Competence, which I think, you know, was was initially focused on clinicians. And I'm like, this book actually is is a skills book for anybody. It doesn't matter what sector of work you're in. So I wrote the book open ended for anybody, no matter what sector of work you're in, because I think that this need to be anti-racist and culturally competent is is a necessary tool in our modern diverse world. Um, the book is is not excessively long, but it has a quick way of addressing the commonplace issues. And I like to think I turn the concept of cultural competence on its head. I mean, there's models that I review on there that really unfortunately approach it from a national geographic anthropological issue where we're learning about the other. This book 
is less about learning about the other and more about learning about ourselves. Because I think if we understand ourselves better, we're better able to understand other people. We have to first begin by understanding ourselves. And that's what this book is. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I could just imagine how hugely empowering it is just to learn about how to become more anti-racist and, and culturally competent and have that skill set um, yeah. to navigate, you know, today's world of uncertainty. I'd like to think this book is a red pill, you know, uh-huh. uh, the red like, pill. Yeah. I, I, uh-huh. I wish I could have called it that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Damn it, your next book, Freyman, your next book. All right, let's enter um, the lightning round here. We we did get two questions online. The first is from Dr. Sharon Hall of MetaSolutions. She's a physician um, turned executive coach. And um, she said, I'd love to just know your um, respective thoughts, yours and mine, about how we can avoid being performative in our support for diversity as leaders. And let's also start with what does that mean, performative? Um, And then how can we sort of avoid doing this thing? Do you want to start? You can start. Okay. You're the expert here. (laughs) I think it goes back to that knowledge and that understanding. I think when we have poor knowledge and understanding, and I'm talking about true nuanced understanding, we'll be performative. You know, so uh, let's go back to COVID. What's really functional? You know, if we if we claim that we are social distancing, but really kind of secretly engaging with other people, it's like, oh, they're my friends. You know, that that means we don't have a good understanding of how COVID worked, and it was performative. And when it's performative, it actually became very dangerous. The same thing is true for issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. If we don't understand what the needs are of people, and as I said, it is a secret. If we're not really reaching out. If we're not understanding, not just in our professional lives, but our personal lives, we don't have that nuanced knowledge and understanding. We don't have that proximity to the problem that we would get that. And so to avoid becoming performative, I think we need that proximity too. It's why I created livingwithracism.com is because those are, those are individual stories of experiences with racism that pull you front and center. Even the videography, we've got people facing right at you, like they're talking to you. And we wanted people to have that very personal and intimate experience of what that was like to increase that proximity. And that has to be done outside of the work time. That's the news, right? In order for us to gain that knowledge, we can't just be doing it during our work time. We got to ask ourselves, how many people of color do we have as friends? You know, are we only going to places, you know, as tourists? Or are we beginning to recognize, you know, those places are part of our community. If you go to a, you know, um, a Chinese restaurant, you know, there's a book called, um, what is it called? Something Nation, um, Chop Suey Nation. And they talk about how these immigrant families from um, Southeast Asia or East Asia were just creating food that was marketable to um, white people, but not really authentic. But if you ever go to one of those restaurants with people who are from that community, you get a whole different menu, right? You got a different level of proximity and a different level of understanding. So I think in order to avoid becoming performative, we need to have a true in-depth understanding where, where we see people who are different from us as a part of our community versus outsiders to that community. Yeah, yeah. And I'll add to that, you know, think about the word performative, performance. You're acting. You're not actually engaging in the real thing, right? You're acting as if, but then you you sort of leave that acting and you go back to your regular stuff that you do, right? Um, but it's not really um, engaging in um, real life conversations with real life people, <laughs> right? All right, we've got one more before we close. Dr. Sunny Lampasso who is also an executive coach, wonders, how do you see leaders at the top shape values around these issues? And how do you, how do mid-level leaders help or hinder these conversations? This is kind of a meaty question for like the last two minutes, but yeah, soundbite, what do you think? Well, let's simplify it. To me, leaders are leaders are leaders. And, you know, mid-level leaders, upper-level leaders, 
you have influence. The moment you have influence, I think you've got responsibility. I mean, let's quote Spider-Man, you know, with, you know, with great um, skill comes great responsibility or something like that. And, and I think when leaders lead, you set the tone, you, you know, there's a concept of modeling that happens psychologically. If you understand what's happening, you can either, whether you're upper level, mid-level, you can either create a barrier to understanding or open the doors to understanding, which is necessary. Um, for true inclusion. Opening the doors to understanding. Love it. That's where we should leave off. Thank you, Dr. Raymond uh, Raymond Abdul-Rahman. He is with leadwithdiversity.com. That's where you can find him. Anywhere else that uh, people can find you and your work? You know, I'm on LinkedIn. And if you want to see my cakes, I'm on Instagram. See his cakes on Instagram, people. They are amazing, a huge skill set. All right. So what did you take away? More importantly, what is one small change you, the audience, can implement this week based on what you learned from Iman? Share it with us on LinkedIn so we can cheer you on. You are here with me, Dr. Mir Branku, on the hard skills, and we're really excited that you were able to join us. Join us next week when we'll have one more really special guest talking about when not to trust your gut. Thank you. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. What really drives success in business? Introducing Intangify, the show that explores the intangible assets that create value and growth. I'm Matthew Asbell, your host and an attorney focused on innovation. Join me Fridays at noon Eastern to discover how innovation, culture, and other intangibles shape driving companies from startups to established businesses. We'll share strategies to unleash your business's true potential. Tune in live on talkradio.nyc Fridays at noon Eastern and Intangify your business today. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.